Let us now turn to the Word of God, to the portion read, the book of the Revelation, chapter 20. We may read from the beginning of the chapter just now, Revelation 20 from verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season, and so on. The chapter 20 of Revelation has been and still is considered to be many of the old divines referred to it as the darkest chapter in the whole of Scripture. And they said that because of the particular difficulties in the interpretation of its contents, and particularly in relation to the six references to the thousand years, which we usually refer to as the millennium. The word, of course, is a Latin word, and it is equivalent to the Greek, which means a thousand. Now, in the various schools of interpretation, of course, uh, the thousand years is explained differently. Some take uh, the thousand years as a literal thousand years, having a beginning at a point in history and a discernible end when Christ comes uh, the second time to the world. Others believe that the thousand years have to uh, be interpreted as symbolic, and uh, they are, of course, in keeping with the other numbers and figures that are used throughout Revelation, like 3 and 7 and 12 and 20 and so on, they are taken and to be consistent because they are taken as symbolic, so then the thousand years are taken as symbolic. Now, Many people have squabbled for years, centuries, in fact, about the meaning of the millennium. It is called by different uh, terms. Some refer to it as the millennium, the thousand years. Others refer to it as the latter-day glory of the church. Some refer to it as the better days others as the great golden age of the church, which the Jews, of course, in the Old Testament were always likewise looking for. But however we define it, it is clear that we cannot escape the fact that it is here intentionally in the word of God to teach us. Now, it is clear that when we come to this chapter 20, we are very, very definitely in the area of eschatology. Uh, Eschatos is simply the Greek for last. And eschatology is the doctrine of the last things. And when we come to this chapter 20, I don't think anyone can debate the fact we are there with 
the last things, the great judgment of God himself, judging men, uh, whether dead or alive, they are all brought before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged according to the things that are written in the books. So that this thousand years, whatever way we look at it, is connected with the end uh, of the world and the end of uh, God's judgment of men. It is connected together. And uh, this is why then we have the debate about whether the millennium is before or whether it follows the coming of Christ the second time. And that's why you have the two distinct schools of thought, premillennialism or postmillennialism, before or after. Now, of course, these two views have four versions, as we may see. But before getting into these matters, it is important for us, because I have been asked the question sometimes, uh, what is my position? Well, it doesn't really matter all that very much. And then I'm asked, what is the position of, for example, the Free Presbyterian Church? Now, the very fact that such a question is asked would indicate that perhaps we don't really put a lot of emphasis upon the issue. The very first thing that we need to look at, and that is the only place where in reality you will get our position, the position of every Presbyterian who is subscribed to the Westminster Confession of Faith. There's always a confession in here so I can look it up. And as we said, one of the principles in the past, we've said it several times, one of the principles of interpretation is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And our own confession teaches us, and it is applicable when we come to the chapter 20 of Revelation. In the first chapter of the Confession and the seventh uh, paragraph, we read, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. Now, let me emphasize that. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. That is, when they're stated on the surface, immediately we may not fully understand them. Nor alike clear unto all. Some may have clarity and others don't. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened at some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. That simply means that the Scripture is absolutely clear when it comes to the matters relating to our soul's salvation, that it is very, very clear, God makes it clear in his word, the way of salvation and the means to that salvation. But there are other areas of truth that are not so clear and are not so easily understood. And this is one of those areas in chapter 20 of Revelation. Now, in the ninth paragraph of the same chapter, we read, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture 
is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So that when we come to a portion of God's word and we think this is difficult to understand, this is not as clear as I might like it to be, what are we to do? We are to go to the other references in scripture that are clear. And we are then to interpret that which on the surface is not so clear by those statements and those scriptures that are clear that we can understand. Having said that, it is also important to note that in all our confessional documents, there is not one single reference to the millennium. It's good to remember that. There is not one reference to the millennium. Nor is there even a reference to the thousand years. So we cannot go to our confession, however it may interpret so many truths of the scripture, we cannot go there and have a clear, distinct interpretation of the thousand years or the millennium. Nevertheless, there are certain things that are made clear, and that is regarding the second coming of Christ, regarding the judgment of the uh, godless as well as the saints. These things are clear. But we do have a reference, and it is the only reference in the larger catechism, and it is, as it were, a, uh, an interpretation or a commentary, perhaps, upon the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. You remember the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught that we are to pray, Thy kingdom Come, that's the second petition in the Lord's Prayer. Now, how did the Westminster divines understand the application of that second petition? This is what we read in the uh, larger catechism, not the shorter, but the larger catechism. A question uh, 191, if you want to Look it up at some time. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come. Now you will hear me regularly, I suppose, in prayer, praying that, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth. And you will sometimes hear other ministers or elders using that petition, thy kingdom come. Now this is what is included in that petition according to the Westminster Divines. Thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins, and the confirming, comforting, 
and building up of those that were already converted, that Christ should rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and our reigning with him forever and that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce uh, to these ends. Now, on occasions, maybe we would pray for uh, certain uh, of those individual matters, but when we pray, thy kingdom come, that is the Savior's direction. That is what he tells us to pray. When we pray, then, this is what we're really praying for, the advancement of Christ's kingdom from the moment it was set up and established until it will be brought into full fruition in the eternal kingdom in glory. Now then, when we come to this chapter 20, and we have before us this concept of a millennial reign of Christ, we have to figure out what it really is and when it will take place. Now, first of all, we have to understand that, as I said already, there are two particular views on the millennium, what we refer to as premillennialism and postmillennialism, meaning that this millennium, thousand years, whether it be literal or whether it be symbolic, takes place after Christ has come the second time, or it takes place prior to his coming. So he comes either before the millennium or he comes after the millennial reign, one or the other. Now, as I said, there are four then uh, particular <coughs> versions of these particular views. With premillennialism, you have what is historic or classic premillennialism, or you have dispensational uh, premillennialism. Now, throughout the history of the church, the views have changed and they've fluctuated and they've moved constantly. And at one stage, in the late 19th century, the early 20th century, if you were not a premillennialist, you were probably considered to be a liberal. That's how strongly fundamentalists viewed premillennialism. They believed firmly that Christ was to come that he would occupy the throne of David, that he would rule over Israel, the Jews would be converted, and so on, and he would physically reign on the earth with his saints. Now, that view took such a grip, particularly in America, that if you did not believe it, you were, it was, you were suspected of perhaps holding to liberal views and that you didn't probably believe in the second coming of Christ, you didn't believe in hell, you didn't believe in the judgment, and so on. So it was a view uh, that was very, very strongly held. Dispensational premillennialism has, of course, anything up to seven different dispensations. The dispensation of the law and the dispensation of the gospel, dispensation of the kingdom, the dispensation of the church, 
and so on. And uh, because of all these various dispensations, you actually have more than two comings of Christ. He didn't just come in his birth and then return uh, the second time in his glory, but there would be various comings in different fashions. With the post-millennial view, that is that uh, Christ comes following, he returns following the millennial reign of Christ. He comes in his glory. Within that school of thought, there, of course, is post-millennialism and amillennialism. Now, some people will separate amillennialism from post-millennialism. A, of course, just means, in the simplest terms, no millennium. But amillennialists do believe in the reign of Christ. And that is why, and they don't believe, that Christ will return until the end of the reign of Christ. They believe, of course, that that is uh, from uh, his resurrection until his final return. So you have these schools of thought, but with post-millennialism, you have, uh, particularly in America, the Reconstructionist movement that was introduced really by Rushduni, who was an Orthodox Presbyterian minister, and uh, he believed, and others who follow him, like uh, Banson and others, they believe that during that reign of Christ, well, he will reign over the nations, over the church and over the nations, and he will restore the laws of the Old Testament. And the nations will apply the laws that were established, the moral laws and the moral judgments that were executed under the Old Testament would be once again restored. The law would be given that place and sanctification in their understanding is bound up with the keeping of that law, with the application of the law. They believe the ceremonial law, of course, is abrogated, but the moral law would be reintroduced and reapplied. So you have these various schools of interpretation. Now, where do we actually stand then? How are we to understand what this thousand years really means, what it is all about. To be consistent, to be consistent with the other symbolic numbers and figures throughout the book, we are compelled to be consistent to take the thousand years as a definite time, but not necessarily a limited time of 1,000 years. If you go, for example, over to Psalm 50, it's interesting to see there <coughs> the book of Psalms. And this Psalm 50, we read there, verse 9, God says, I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills are mine. The cattle upon a thousand hills. Now, no one is going to read those words and imagine that once you've gone over a thousand hills, and you see the cattle on a thousand hills, they belong to God. After that, God doesn't own them. We know perfectly well that that is an expression, a, a, a symbolic expression, 
God owns every beast, but the thousand is considered in Hebrew thinking as a full number, number of perfect fullness. And that is what the psalmist is talking about. Cattle on a thousand hills. It really means all the hills, unlimited number of hills, all the cattle belong to God. And here in the chapter 20 of Revelation, and it is, of course, to be understood, this is the only, and this is perhaps one of the great difficulties. This is the only place in Scripture where there is mention of a thousand years. The only place in Scripture so that this is considered to create its own difficulties. Now, if it were but one verse in which we would have a thousand years mentioned, that would be quite sufficient. If God were to mention it once, that is quite sufficient to establish that it is authorized as part of the word of God. <clears throat> but one of the questions that we, if we're to understand it, as in every part of Scripture, where does Christ fit in here? Instead of asking, where does the millennium fit in, we should begin where we ought to begin, where does Christ fit in here? Now you will see in this chapter, (coughs) verse 4, John says, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Now the premillennialist will tell you that these are the thrones of those who are reigning on earth physically reigning on earth with Christ for a thousand years. John says, in addition to this, and I saw the souls of them uh, that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. So he's talking now about the martyrs that we've seen throughout the book of the Revelation up to this point, and which worship, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Who is reigning here? These who were beheaded as martyrs for the gospel of Christ, they are actually reigning at this time, reigning during the period of this thousand years. Where are they reigning? They are reigning with Christ a thousand years. You go down then to verse 6. We read, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, where does that take us to? We go right back to where we began in the fourth chapter of Revelation after the introduction and after the messages to the seven churches. We read, just to remind ourselves, chapter 4, John writes, verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet, 
talking with me, which said, Come up hither, I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat in the throne, and so on. That's where we begun. That's what we were introduced to at the beginning, the glorious throne of heaven and the reigning Christ ruling and reigning over everything from that throne. Now when we come to Revelation 20, we're brought back as it were to that throne. We don't read that these who were martyred were reigning somehow or other over their enemies. But they were reigning with Christ himself. They are reigning not by their own authority, but they are reigning with Christ. He is the one who has the authority. He is the one who is reigning. And we're told they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So whatever this thousand years means, whatever its significance, we have to know this. Christ is reigning. But then, because we are told of those who reign with him, we're able to work out where he's actually reigning. Is it in earth or is it in heaven? Which is it? Are they who are reigning with him on earth or are they in heaven? Are they glorified or are they on earth? We are told <coughs> that in verse 4, they were beheaded for the witness of Christ. They worship not the beast and uh, they have not his mark upon them and they lived and reigned with Christ. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. It isn't that Christ comes to reign with them when they are resurrected. That's what the premillennialist will tell you, that these have been resurrected because there are two Resurrections. The premillennialist says when Christ comes the first time, then there's going to be a resurrection. And uh, there will be raised from the dead those who will reign with Christ from Jerusalem in this earth. And then... At the end of that reign, there will be a tribulation and many Jews will be converted and then Christ will come another time because there will be another resurrection and he will come in judgment then. There will be a second resurrection. Now our confession, and I believe According to scripture, it's quite clear there will be one general resurrection, both of the uh, unconverted and the saints. They will both be resurrected at the same time. Now, we are told in verse 5 of this chapter 20, the rest of the dead live not again, until the thousand years were finished. The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. So you have this thousand years coming to an end, and then you have following that the judgment. That's how we're able to figure out the connection because after this 
the dead live not for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. And then we have the resurrection referred to as being appointed for judgment. In verse 12, John writes, I saw the dead. I saw the dead. The dead lived not until the thousand years were finished. Now he sees the dead who have lived not for a thousand years. They remain dead. And (coughs) John says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, and uh, so on. Now, no one can question that when we've come to this particular point, we're at the end. The judgment is set. And every man, woman, and child that ever has been they are now brought before the judge. And the books are to be opened because there will be nothing to be added. The books are completed. The life stories are ended. And now the books are open. There will be nothing additional. There will be no more books to be added. There will be no more lives to be lived. There will be no more stories to be told. This is it. The judgment is now set, and every man is judged according to what is written in the books. If you go with me over to Acts chapter 17, you will see this confirmed, the Acts of the Apostles and the chapter 17. Paul is speaking, addressing the Athenians who were idolaters. And he tells them, verse 30 of Acts 17, the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why does he do this? Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. He hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. I know one can doubt for a moment that that man is Christ. This is the judgment that Christ will execute as the judge of all the earth. Now, we're told that this is a day that is divinely appointed. So, when we come to Revelation 20, we're at a particular appointed day. But then we may ask, and when has it been appointed? If you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you will find there that uh, the apostle writing to the Corinthians says this, or writes this, verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 15, Then cometh the end. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Now keep that in mind. He shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. 
He shall be in complete control. He shall have put down and subdued every form of power and authority that is opposed to him and so on. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now, when, as we have already pointed out from the confession, we come to a part of Scripture that's difficult to understand, then we go to the parts that are clearer to understand. And here it is obvious from what Paul writes that there is an end to come. And when the end comes, Christ will have put down all his enemies. And the last enemy that he shall put down at the end is, or that he will destroy, is death. Now how do we know that we're at the very end when we come to Revelation 20? How do we know? Because we're told in verse 13, when the books are opened, the dead are to be judged out of the things that are written in the books. Verse 13, rather. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Notice, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. What did Paul tell the Corinthians? At the end, the last enemy that would be destroyed is death. And here we have the glorious Redeemer himself, the great conqueror who rode on the white horse, and he's put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy now, what does he do? Death and hell have served their purpose, and now death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Now what is significant about the lake of fire? Well, we're told in verse uh, 10, the devil uh, that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it is very, very obvious that the lake of fire and of brimstone is the reserved prison of God and of Christ for his enemies. Last Lord's Day, we saw from uh, chapter 19, when the conquering Redeemer, his name is the Word of God and so on, he takes hold of the beast and of the false prophet, the two beasts, one arising out of the sea and the other out of the earth. And uh, we're told, verse 20 of chapter 19, the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles uh, before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and that worshipped the image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. So you have these beasts that have deceived, that have introduced and maintained false worship and so on, the anti-Christian religion and the agents of it, they are cast into the lake of fire. They have been taken and cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. 
Now then, the devil, in chapter 20, he is seen also cast into the same place. And then, in verse 14, death and hell are likewise cast into the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is reserved for the enemies of Christ when he puts them all down then this is their abode forever and ever. Now, one of the differences between those who hold a premillennial view and those who hold a postmillennial view of this, uh, the events in this chapter, <coughs> this millennium, is the time when the uh, the devil, as he's here, the dragon, the old serpent, the devil, when he is bound, what does it mean and when does it happen? And you see, the premillennialist believes that when you go through the book of the Revelation, generally speaking, it is all about the last times. It's really all eschatological. When we come to this chapter then, they are of a mind that chapter 20 follows sequentially the chapter 19. The post-millennialist believes that is not the case. What we see from chapter 16 on to chapter 20 is all really covering the same period. But, as we've said all along, we see different pictures, as it were, of the same events from different angles. And so what we have in chapter 19 and chapter 20 really covers the same events, the same period, only we're looking at it from a different angle. Now in verse 1 of chapter 20, what does John say? And I saw, connecting it with what he has previously seen, chapter 19, verse 11, and I saw heaven open. Then verse 17, and I saw an angel standing in the sun, verse 19, and I saw the beast, and uh, so on. In verse 1 of chapter 20 then, and I saw an angel. These various events are all connected. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Right away, We cannot follow the premillennialist because it's impossible to interpret this literally. The premillennialist depends on literal interpretation of almost everything in Revelation. Whereas the postmillennialist or the amillennialist interprets almost everything as being symbolic, but symbolizing something that is literal. And here the angel comes down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. This is not a material chain. This is not a material key. But it is symbolizing his power and his authority. He has the key of the bottomless pit, and he has a great chain in his hand. What does he do with it? He laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. So there is absolutely no question as to who this personage is. The dragon 
Remember the two beasts? One comes out of the sea, one comes out of the earth. But who empowers them? It is the dragon who gives them power. And they serve his purposes. Now, as we noted last week, these two persons of this evil, wicked trinity, the beast and the false prophet, they are cast into the lake of fire. What then is to become of the dragon, the old serpent, the devil? What happens to him? He is lost, as it were, his agents, and the trinity of evil is broken. Now what about the dragon? That is deceived right from the very beginning of time in the Garden of Eden. Well, this is what John tells us. One came down from heaven and laid hold in the dragon. Now, who can lay hold on the dragon? Who can take hold of Satan? Who can bind him? None other than the Christ of God himself. <coughs> and what are we told? He bound him a thousand years. He bound him for a thousand years. So now we have With this thousand years, we have Christ reigning. No dispute about that. When he reigns, those who have been martyred reign with him. They are reigning with him in heaven. But during that same period, the dragon, the old serpent, the devil is chained and bound. These are happening at the same time. We're not, I trust, of a mind that there are several different millenniums or different thousand years. Each time, each of the six times, when we read of the thousand years, it's referring to the same period. Let it be literal or let it be symbolic It's the same period. So Christ is reigning and the devil is bound and chained, fettered for the same thousand years that Christ is reigning. We read verse 3, he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. So Satan for this period is under the divine control of the reigning Christ. He's one of his enemies, and you will see that here his power to deceive is limited to say the very least. Now, let us look at the Savior's own life, his own ministry, what took place during his own ministry, Mark's gospel, uh, where we have Mark referring to the beginning of the gospel, Mark chapter 1. And we read of an incident in the very early stages of the Savior's ministry. Mark and the first chapter, we read that Jesus... Verse 21 of Mark 1 went into Capernaum. And straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. And there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, 
And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God. This seems to be the first confrontation between Christ and this uh, this uh, agent of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. What does he say? Let us alone. We want to be left as we are. We want to be left alone. Let us alone. It was as though there was this recognition, now that Christ has come, things change. Things change for us. We are not going to be left alone. Now he goes on to say, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God. Again, in the Gospel according to Luke, in the fourth chapter, you have there, (coughs) in verse 33, Luke's record, And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil, and cried out with a a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. Now it is very obvious that here, The devils recognized we are now confronted with the eternal Son of God. We are now confronted with power that can destroy us, that can rebuke us, that can cast us out, that can bind us. They recognized this. They recognized when Christ was in the earth that he had the power to destroy their power. And... The devil, when he had thrown thrown him in the midst, he came out and hurt him not. Now, in the second epistle that Paul writes to the Corinthians, chapter 5, you have there, (coughs) in that chapter 5, verse 10, we're told... Sorry, I've I've got the wrong uh, Luke, rather Luke's Gospel, chapter ten. I should have said Luke's Gospel, chapter ten, and there you have in that chapter, chapter ten, and the verse seventeen. We read that the seventy. This is the seventy disciples that the Savior sent out by twos, to preach the kingdom. Verse 17 of Luke 10, the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. It's very obvious their power is bound and limited. The devils are subject To us. Why are they subject to us? They are subject to us through thy name. It is by thy power that they are in bondage. They are being bound. And as we preach, they are subject to us. He said unto them, 
I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So here is the evidence during the ministry of the Savior, the disciples were recognizing that uh, Satan's power is now broken. Now you must remember, prior to the Savior coming into this world, the gospel is contained within the nation of Israel. It is not just national religion. That is the church, church of the Old Testament. You go to the seventh chapter of the Acts and you have Stephen there and he's testifying to the truth. And one of the things that he says about Moses is this, Acts chapter Uh, 7 verse 37 this is that Moses which uh, said unto the children of Israel a prophet shall the Lord your God raise unto you of your brethren like unto me him shall ye hear this is uh, Moses being referred to as being a prophet in the Old Testament church this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake unto him in Mount Sinai. This is the church. Many of the premillennialists and the dispensationists, they make a distinction between Israel and the church. And they will say that they are two different entities. And they are not to be confused. And they're never going to be, as it were, one. But there is absolutely no doubt about it here that we're talking about Israel of old, the ancient people of God, the ancient church, going through the wilderness with Moses. This is he that was in the church. Or it can be translated the congregation, the ecclesia, the congregation. So in reality we can understand that Israel was a congregation of the church. It was the Old Testament congregation of the church. Now, because this is the case... There is but one church, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and so on. There is but one church, so that we believe in the continuity of the church. The Old Testament and the New Testament church are one church in reality. When Jesus came into this world, light came into the world. Light, we're told, to enlighten the Gentiles. Prior to his coming, Satan had complete control, as it were. He ruled, you remember what he said to Jesus in the wilderness and the temptation? What did he say to him when he took him up into a mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth? What did he say? If you bow down to me and worship me, I will hand them over. Because they're committed to me. They belong to me. I'm in control of them. Paul tells the Ephesians that before they'd been spiritually quickened, they had been led captive by the devil at his will. They served as the children of disobedience, the God of this world. Now when Jesus comes into the world, Satan's kingdom is disturbed. These 
evil spirits are saying, Art thou come now to destroy us? Art thou, art thou come now to take away our authority? Art thou come to rob us of our kingdom and of our authority? When we come to Revelation 20, we have something of this brought before us. We haven't time to go any more into it. But one thing is very clear. We've now reached the end of time. We're brought to the judgment. So what is happening leads up to this judgment. These thousand years, Satan is bound, Christ reigns, the saints that have been beheaded or the martyrs are reigning with him. Where is he reigning? He's reigning in heaven. He's still in the throne. We've been introduced to the throne and he's still in that throne. But we shall have to leave it for further consideration Uh, This is as far as we can go just now. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we rejoice that the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, that the great Christ, the Son of God, is in control of all things, that even the very devils have to be subject to him. He can bind them and silence them, He can control their every actions. He can cast them into the swine. He can command them to come out of men. We rejoice that the powers of darkness, however great, are not free to do as they will when they will. We rejoice in a Christ as a Savior who is ruling and reigning over all things, even presently. Do thy blesses with knowledge of who he is and what he does. Pardon now our sins, receive us for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.